Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Jennifer Lang. Born in the San Francisco Bay Area, Jennifer lives in Tel Aviv, where she runs Israel Writer's Studio. Her prize-winning essays appear in Baltimore Review, Under the Sun, Midway Journal, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and is an assistant editor at Brevity Journal longtime yoga practitioner and instructor. Places We Left Behind, a memoir in miniature, was published on September 5th and landed a yogi's memoir in pieces and poses, which will be published in October 2024, are both with Vine Leaves Press. So welcome, Jennifer. I've read your very unique memoir, Places We Left Behind, a memoir in miniature, and I'm glad to have this opportunity uh, to speak with you about it today. Um, So one of the themes uh, in the book is the complicated decision you had to make about uh, living in Israel. But first, uh, before we get to that, I want to ask you, about how you and your family are doing in Israel since October 7th. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad we're finally connecting and doing this conversation today. And yes, if we had done this conversation a few months ago, it would be so different. Right, right. Um, I was on a book tour that I put together from September 18th until October 20, October 31st. And so I was in California where I grew up um, on October 7th and could not reach my husband or grown-up son and his wife because they keep Shabbat and I had to wait it out. Um, I called my neighbor upstairs asking at one point if they would go down and knock on the door and see if they were home and get my husband to turn on his phone. But when he went down later in the afternoon, my husband still wasn't home. So um, all to say, it's, it's a different world. So I did not cancel my trip in any way and come back. I think uh, on several levels, my husband didn't ask. He never would have asked. He watched me work for the past 13 months to put this book tour together. Um, tremendous work. I wasn't just meeting at with Jewish communities. I had libraries and bookstores and yoga studios and all kinds of different conversations. I had Jewish and non-Jewish audiences at every turn, West Coast, East Coast. Mm -hmm. And I pivoted. Um, My last event in the Bay Area was canceled at Temple Emanuel in San Francisco for October 8th. Mm -hmm. And instead we were at a solidarity event with the community. Um, I changed my entire like my mission, my, my mission in going to the States was to have conversation around the main themes of marriage and compromise and faith and family. And I changed the entire conversation to read passages about hearing my first air raid siren at age 25, 
running for shelter, newly married, first Gulf War, putting on a gas mask, hearing my parents on the phone from California checking in on us as CNN was filming missile launches from Kuwait into Israel. Um, and it was dreadful to change that conversation. I'm going to get teary. Sorry. It was dreadful because I didn't ever intend to read those passages because it gives such a terrible, terrible light to this country. And so at every turn after reading for about 10 minutes, I would start conversation by saying, it isn't always like this. It's a beautiful life. It's just, there's always something going on underneath the surface. So on, on October 7th, that underneath the surface, it's like it just reached a boiling point. And I'm not a politician. We're not here to talk politics, but part of me wants to say to you, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. We had a status quo that wasn't, wasn't viable. And um, it felt at any moment that it could shatter and it did, and I'm not surprised. So tell us a little bit about um, what, uh, before we get to your wonderful memoir, um, before, what it was like um, before living in Israel, you said it, it was a wonderful life and then just how um, that changed. Uh, sure. For people there, I, I think it would be good to give some of our um, listeners who are many of our listeners who are not in Israel, a, a, just a sense of what life is like now. But start with before. Yeah, so I, I had a talk prepared that I gave once on October 2nd in the sukkah of my childhood home. And then I couldn't give it again. It was supposed to be at the GCC in Scarsdale, New York, and I couldn't give it. It was already irrelevant. And one of the the, the topic was um, from from California to Tel Aviv, eighteen. Oh my God, Meryl, mm -hmm. siren. Mm. Okay, go. Siren, go. gotta go. go. Go where you have to go. Go. there uh yes i am i am i i okay, am well, that's genuine so so what happens when you hear sirens do you have to go somewhere or do you what do you so do we have a we have a shelter in our apartment but it seems since this started and i was abroad my husband gathers with our neighbors in the stairwell and our neighbors are like really israeli and so the thing is we figure or the, the, the thinking is if they're going to the stairwell and not to the shelter to the field room in their apartment, they must know something we don't know, which is the stairwell in our complex where we live is even sturdier and more safer than anything else. Mm -hmm. so, so we meet them in the stairwell. They are always in their bathrobes. Mm. We think they're, my, my daughter thinks they're nudists. Wow. <laughs> All right. So, so, uh, so shall we can, shall we can yeah. do? Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so, so the question was, um, before, what before made it such a beautiful place to be uh, before and um, other than having to interrupt the interview and run run to um, seek shelter, how, how is it different now? Yeah, okay. So um, before, and one of the points of my 18 things you might want to know, you know, well, to, to live in Israel, this talk that I've given was that the streets are safe, that there's just this sense of everybody's looking out for each other. 
it's it, it goes hand in hand with we're always watching our backs, um, always keeping an eye out for suspicious objects. All of that goes together, and um, you could just you felt free in this in the streets, and you feel it as a woman, you feel it as a parent, you feel it you know with your children. My I have two daughters in their twenties. I, I have I have no qualms. Um, I think that now the streets are, are exceptionally quiet for tell I live in Tel Aviv in the center of Tel Aviv the streets mm -hmm. are exceptionally quiet there's no tourists right now obviously um and people are just starting to come out of this you know paralysis that you were talking about um mm -hmm. that I understand but missed was prevalent for the first two weeks I mean people just were not you know leaving home a little bit like a COVID but Mm -hmm. for a very different reason. And so Tel Aviv is coming back to life, but I've now been out at night. Um, I hesitate. I never used to hesitate. I don't want to be outside in the dark with a siren. I don't know where I would go to. I know that you run into apartment buildings. Um, somebody put a post in a Tel Aviv women's group suggesting that apartment buildings put a notice on their door saying you can shelter here if there's a siren enter mm -hmm. enter you can shelter and mm -hmm. i've been on the other end of that we lived in a different apartment and in may of 2021 in the middle of the day there was crazy sirens and all of a sudden the door we were in the stairwell with our neighbors and all of a sudden the door the main door opened people poured in a bus had stopped right outside and told everyone to run to go into the building mm -hmm. so i i know that's how it works i just i've mm -hmm. never had it um right. So the streets, the streets, you know, you want, you want to feel safe where you live. And I've always said that on the street level, Israel is so safe. It's just this big geopolitical in the sky and underneath our feet level. That's the problem. And now it's crept in for me into the streets. Like, you know, I, I have a fear and I don't want to have it of, you know, Hamas planning stuff in the streets. And it's, it's, you know, it's hard to live like that. It's really hard to live like that. So what's the beautiful life? We live seven minutes from the water. Um, taking a walk along the Mediterranean is, you know, it's my own little big Knesset. Um, we have this beautiful view of Jaffa at night. It is gorgeous when it's lit up. Um, we, you know, bike on Shabbat to friends in Jaffa or near the port in the north. We take walks, we meet friends and play the French little ball game called petanque. The Italians call it bocce ball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we play on Rothschild. Yeah, we have a beautiful life. So um, you you run the, the Israel Writer uh, Studio. I, I'd be curious about um, the impact of the massacre and the war on the the studio and other writers and authors you know yeah so the studio really shuts down for the Chagim so I shut down I, I really don't teach until after the holidays are over and then I kind of give it a usually a two-week leeway even after so I start up again next week mm -hmm. um it, it closes down because just no one, no one's around, no one responds, no one's focused on it. So I, it, the studio is not impacted in, in any way right now. Um, I have a very small class starting next week called Writing Our Roots. I used to teach it at Beit HaTputzot, now called Anu. 
the Museum of the Diaspora. Mm-hmm. Now it's called the Museum of the Jewish People. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to run a class in there and we got shut down due to COVID. And then I was like, well, I wrote the material. It's my material. I brought the class home. So I teach this um, eight-week class, Writing Our Roots. I have four people coming and I normally never run a class that small. And we're starting on Zoom, which I really mm-hmm. don't care for. But I feel like, you know what? Let's try and have a little focus. Let's, you know, let's all try to take our heads off of what's going on because we're so in it all the time. Um, and and it is what it is. You, you learn you learn in this very sad way to live with it. And we all are. Um, so that that's the impact on the studio. Um, impact what was the next part of that question uh, sorry you know on on your friends and 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 other other writers and relatives um you know it yeah. was I heard um uh somebody saying that you know if you live in Israel you know you you know people um even if you weren't directly yourself impacted by the massacre by the war you know um people um, young people in, in the army um, is you want yeah. to speak to that yeah. a little bit yeah and I'm gonna get teary um, my children I have two out of three who did the army neither was called up one one was in a huge intelligence unit and he's not in the system anymore and another one who lives in America was in the air force and she she's working in America and staying there for lots of different reasons mm-hmm. um, I I, on every side of me, all of my friends' kids, all of my friends have between one and four children who have been called up right now. Mm. And, and um, these are male and female. And I, every morning I read the news once, I read it Ynet breaking news every morning right before I get out of bed. And I have never in my life done what I do now, which is when it says that a soldier has fallen, I click to see who it is because it's that close and it's that, you know, it's everywhere. It's my cousin's children. It's my nephews. It's my friend's children. It's everyone. I'm, I'm in my late fifties. So it's all of our kids. Mm. And, um, you know, it doesn't really matter in this country that if it's someone I know or not, cause it feels like, you know, everyone. Right. And, it, and, and if it isn't my, someone I know it's, you know, it's someone my neighbor knows it's, it's just, you know, if you know Israel, that's, that's the way this works. Um, so we're all affected in that way and it's heavy. It's really, really heavy on Shabbat. We walked to Dizengoff, um, we were friends. We had a potluck lunch. It was the first time. It's the second time we got together with our group of friends. We had a potluck lunch at someone's apartment and then we played code names just to take our minds off of things. And we walked by Kikar Dizengoff and it is, um, uh, one huge memorial as you walk around the Kikar, the fountain. It's um, candles, it's plastic, a plastic bottle taped to a, another plastic bottle with sand in it. And I think what it's showing is time. Time mm. has run out. Um, it's every picture of every hostage and then all kinds of things around each one, like personal flowers, messages, prayers, people standing in front. I walked by a woman just standing and looking and reading and crying. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. 
um, tomorrow a friend is coming in from outside the city and we're going to visit the families. Um, I think it's at the plaza of the Tel Aviv Museum near the mm -hmm. court, near the library, mm -hmm. to visit the family of the hostages. And just this is yesterday I was with a friend and we went for like five hours and we worked at a huge, huge, like a, where, a makeshift warehouse that is the basement parking lot of the Expo Convention Center that's been turned into this unbelievable cars driving in, dropping off donations of bedding, of clothing, of shoes, of games, of everything, men, women, children, all ages for the house, furniture, everything, books, everything. And so there's volunteers and we're removing things from bags and we're sorting. We were in the clothing, men, the women clothing yesterday and we were sorting, making piles and then putting them in the boxes. And um, on the one hand, it's beautiful, it's extraordinary. And on the other hand, it's just heartbreaking. So yeah. everyone is really distracted. Like no one is working the way we normally work. Um, everyone's taking either days off each week or hours off each day to do something. Well, thank thank you for sharing that. I I know that it's difficult, but I think it's an important um, perspective for our for our listeners uh, to hear. All right, so let's let's shift gears a little bit and get um get back to your memoir. Uh, for for those who haven't read it uh, yet, why don't you you give us a brief uh, synopsis and also share with us um what makes it a very um, quick and unique read. Sure. So elevator pitch, Places We Left Behind is a love story with a lot of conflict, inner and personal, marital and geopolitical about home. So it's a story that starts in 1989 when I meet my future French husband in the hills outside of Jerusalem. And we have a, a fast kind of frenetic falling in love two months later I move in with him in Haifa I'm in Israel temporarily but in order to be together I clearly had to stay and I stayed and I made Aliyah and we got married and we had a son and um the the conflict is where to live but it's also how Jewish to, to live to to be he is European, French, um, traditional. He can't stand our American boxes. I, I love the boxes. I grew up as an American Reform Jew. I went to Reform summer camp, Reform youth group. Um, reform Judaism absolutely defines my childhood mm -hmm. and my identity. And he grew up Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he grew up um, keeping kosher. And he grew up learning how to put on tefillin when he was 13 and putting on tefillin every day. And he grew up going to shul on Shabbat and he grew up going to shul and sitting with his father and his brother and his mom on the other side of a bit mechitza. And he grew up only eating dairy or fish in a non-kosher restaurant and all, all separating milk and meat, um, changing dishes at Pesach. And all of this, because we ended up in America, all of this became what we call modern orthodox mm -hmm. so we raised our children in modern orthodox schools and shuls on the west coast and the east coast moving each time for jobs and for our search for home and i was 
uncomfortable in my in my family life, really. I didn't like raising my kids so differently than me, like outwardly differently, you know, dressing in a different way and um, having to always look at menus before we could eat somewhere. <laughs> right. Um, hard, hard to take that on if you don't have the belief. And I don't have that belief. So the conflict, the tension was there from the beginning. It was, um, we, you know, we, as young 23 year olds, 24, we did not deal with it. And then we started to have to, to deal with it. Uh, we were 27 in therapy, married two years when we first started to try and deal with it. I was petrified to have children because I didn't know how we were going to deal with it. And so we were in and out of therapy. So um, yeah. what, what inspired you to, to share this deeply personal story? Uh, I was <clears throat> trying to write about all the moves that I had done. And I was trying it like from a, from a yogic place. So I was, I went to do an MFA in 2014. I was in my late forties, maybe. And um, I arrived at my MFA program with my first essay to share to workshop a yoga pose and then a move, a yoga pose and a move, a yoga pose and a move. And by moves, I mean like big international moves, you know, like Tel Aviv to Paris, Paris to San Francisco, San Francisco to New York, New York to, tel to Israel, Israel to New York, New York, right. to Israel, like big. And the feedback, which is common in workshops, the feedback from 11 people was this should be a book. Mm. So that was where the first seed was planted that I was on to something. But um, uh, like six months later, working with a different mentor, um, I wrote an essay about running for shelter in 1991, first Gulf War, and then running for shelter as a newlywed, 25 years old, and then running for shelter with my teenagers in 2014 in the Hamas-Israel war. And I was in present tense and past tense, and I was very much you know, talking, writing about my marriage. And my mentor started writing in the margins, I think you should separate your marriage from the sealed room. And I think you should think about writing about your marriage. Your marriage is interesting. And we spent months, I spent months in the margins of my essay saying, what about my marriage? You know, when you're in something, you don't see the interesting part of it, right? Right, but I, I'm just... <laughs> I just have to ask you this question. Um, why did you decide to make it a memoir and not fictionalize it, for instance, make it an, a novel? Um, because sadly, I don't know how to do that. Oh. <laughs> I've never done that, sadly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, easiest answer. Um, I've taken creative nonfiction classes and memoir classes for about 20 years. I've, you mm -hmm. know, I've taken one fiction class, like... I just don't know how. I know the word plot, but I don't. I don't know how you make plot. Okay, well, so so I have a question for you because I don't really know um, much about uh, memoir writing. Uh -huh. I, I want to know: um, was it a conscious decision to make it a memoir in miniature? And it's it's a to me. It's a very unique style. I don't know whether you invented it or this is a thing. Um, so, so, so tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I didn't start here. I started with a very traditional text, like 90,000 words back in 2016. 
um, with all of what I call the connective tissue from paragraph to paragraph, from page to page and chapter to chapter and long-winded and overwritten and boring and flat. Mm-hmm. And, and I hated what I'd written, but I, I, but I knew that I could write 90,000 words. So the only good part of that was I knew that I could do it. Um, hired a developmental editor who gave me amazing feedback. And one of the main things she said to me in her feedback was, um, you need to develop your secondary characters more. So that was my husband, my children, and my parents. And I was like, that's off limits. There was no way. My kids were, my oldest was just entering like his own adult life in his mm-hmm. early 20s. And he has a big presence as his mm-hmm. own person, separate from us. And I, and, and had, he had just asked me to stop using his name in my writing. And I mean, my okay, poor, <laughs> well, my, that's, my, that's a clue, <laughs> right? My poor kids were doomed because I honestly started writing when he was two. And before my girls were born during mm-hmm. my pregnancies with them, I was always writing, already writing about them. So it, you know, doomed, just doomed. Um, so I understood that if I had to remove his name, I was going to remove their names, my oh. girls' names. I, I knew already I had, uh, my relationship with my sibling had always been very tense growing up and we basically don't speak. And he threatened to sue me if I write about him. I knew I couldn't write about him and use his name. So I had to figure it out. So so that happened. So when I got this feedback from this editor, one of the things they encourage is, you know, read the feedback, read it a couple times, but then put the manuscript away. Don't try to work on it right away. So I put it away and I put it away for months and I didn't like what I'd written. So it, it worked for me to put it away. Mm-hmm. And while I'd put it away, I took a class with um, a woman named Kathy Fish. She teaches something called Fast Flash. And I I don't really know why I took it. Um, I think I was starting to read shorter prose. I I think I was already an assistant editor at Brevity, which is nonfiction stories of 750 words or less. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to be really fascinated by this, you know, compressed prose is how I look at it. Um, So I I delved into that. I took an online class where we were reading each other's work and giving really quick feedback. And the feedback I was getting was, this is fascinating. I was writing all about my life in Israel. Everyone was like, I hope you're writing a memoir in flash. So, you know, the interesting feedback. Then um, I answered a call, a, a literary journal in, in England called Mislexia. And the, the call was J is for dot, dot, dot. And the Mac, the word count was 300 words or less. And I went into my like 3,500 word chapter. I, I, I knew exactly what word I wanted, jury. And I took that 3,500 word chapter and I wrote it in under 300 words to, 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 to use the word jury. And basically my prose popped, like sizzled and made me feel something. And I knew I was onto something. And then I, it just went from there. I went forward to K and to L and to M and back to A and to B and to C. And I went from a 90,000 word manuscript to 65,000 word manuscript. Um, and I knew I was onto something. I, I found the heart of what I was trying to say, the more I compressed. But your your manuscript, it's I mean, the book is not how many words is it? It's it's Four, it's about fourteen thousand. Yeah. 14. It's really non-traditional. 
Yeah. So did you, did you, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just asking, did you invent this memoir? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You, so yeah. this is not a, this is not a thing yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, that's, is... that's something. Wow. Yeah. Um, did you, so you, I'm, I'm guessing from your answer that you think, I was going to ask you if you think you lost or gained anything by its brevity. I, I sounds like you think you gained something. I gained so and I anything? also, I no, I, I two things have happened. The brevity is one aspect and the playful experimental prose. So strike throughs, checklists, um, spacing on the page, footnotes, um, all, all kinds of different things that I use. I basically can't go backwards. I find writing regular prose like really boring. So I'm really in it. I'm not an artist. I'm not a graphic, you know, memoir person uh i'm not i'm not an illustrator but i'm fascinated by when words are not enough and feeling this need to to say it or show it differently through some other i'm going to use the word medium but i don't think that's the right word some other no, way think, yeah i think playful i think playful is a, a a good word uh one one of the words uh to describe it uh, so so you you basically um took your ninety thousand words distilled to sixty five thousand words. Now you have uh, fourteen thousand words approximately. Um, and in October of twenty twenty four, I have about forty eight thousand words coming oh, out okay. in a, in landed a yogi's memoir and pieces and poses. So it became clear to me that I was um, when it was one book, it wasn't working. When it was one story altogether, and it became clear to me that um, landed the second book. I I really started anew. I didn't go into the old material, the sixty five thousand words. I I started over when a couple of readers said to me, "I think you're asking the wrong question. I don't think this is about your marriage. I think this is your journey. What's your journey? What is your question?" And I real and that's like really a big thing for memoir. So yeah, go ahead. Um, no, and so I started over. I just started as soon as we landed in Israel in 2011, and I realized I had a seven-year journey that I had gone on to really make peace with living here. It took me seven years. And oh, okay, so I I was going to get to that. So it's not specifically about yoga. It's sort of a it's no. a continuation. It's a continuation. So um, would you say it's a sequel or? No, I, it, 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 I mean, kind of, but like, could someone just read the second one without the first? Absolutely. The difference is so, so in places we left behind, it's just present tense and it's just, it's from 1989 to 2011. It doesn't go back in time. It doesn't flip around in time. It just mm -hmm. moves forward In landed it's in present past and poses. So you don't need to know anything about yoga. It's just that I continue to tell the story in present tense through either taking a yoga class and being on the mat or through teaching a yoga class in some kind of yoga experience. Okay, so getting getting back to um and we'll, and we'll talk a little bit more about the 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 second memoir. Getting back to the places we left behind a memoir in in miniature. So you've done something here where you've basically invented um a genre or a subgenre or um 
how was it to to try and get it published? I mean, what was what was your process like? So initially, I actually had this teeny tiny text under ten thousand words, and I was submitting it to prose creative nonfiction chapbook competitions. Mm-hmm. Just prose. There was nothing experimental in it. And um, while I was doing all the research for these competitions, I noticed like kind of six months in with a lot of rejection, I noticed the word experimental prose in the guidelines. And I started to think about what that possibly meant. I had no idea what that meant. And I started to think about it. I remembered an earlier reader saying they wished that I had put in my pro con list and I was deciding whether or not to move in with my boyfriend, my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went in and recreated the pro-con list. And then I looked at another chapter where we're zigzagging through the old city in Jerusalem. And I stretched it out on the page to reflect that zigzag through the alleys. But as someone said to me, someone wrote in a review, it's like the Wailing Wall. It's like the, the stones on the Wailing Wall kind of, you know, stones, Mm -hmm. right? And I was like, okay, well, I didn't intend that, but that's really cool. A lot of people have read this differently than me and said things to me that make it really meaningful. So I was in conversation with someone in San Francisco at the Jewish Community Library. He's a old camp friend from our reform camp days. He's a professor of, I think, um, I wanna say history at San Francisco State. And he was talking about how my footnotes are almost like commentary. It's almost, what is it, Mishnah? Mishnah. Yeah, well, you really, you really do have to read the footnotes also. Yeah, 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 right. And I was like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but that works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so yes, I've done this thing that I created all from seeing this expression, experimental prose in call for submissions, in chapbook competitions. I went into my text. I started to think, where could I experiment? And I started to do more and more. And then I got um, with some of the, what, what you see today, no one had seen until it came out. But a version of it, an earlier version with less experimentation, I submitted to a chatbook contest at a um, chestnut review, I think it's called, and it won as a finalist. And the editor-in-chief wrote me the most incredible love letter saying, you know, I hope this is picked, but if it's not, it will be. And when it is, tell me, because I will shout on social media for you, like really supportive. And so I was like, okay, I think I'm onto something. So before submitting it to Vine Leaves Press, I did as much experimentation as I could. And then I sent it off and I got another love letter from them saying, wow, this is, you know, amazing. So yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it resonated. Wow, that's great. So, so what did um what did writing this book and getting it published mean to you? I realized in the rereading that it's a love letter to my husband, and um, it means a lot because we've had a lot of tension, we've had a lot of struggle, and a lot of moments of you know stay or go, are we gonna make it? And it feels like a love letter. Yeah, it's, it really, um, it's, you know, for people who want uh, a quick read, it is definitely a quick read. Um, 
especially in, in this time, you know, if you want to uh, read something connect, connected to the state of Israel and and it, it's it's really um, it, it's really uh, a very, very um, unique, uh, unique read. Um, so let's get back now to the um, landed, a yogi's memoir in pieces and poses so that so that's different that's that's um so forty five thousand words uh that would be is that more like a traditional uh well, no, no no because no. what what happened it was but what happened was is that once i realized that places we left behind kind of sang in this really fun also i want to just say this Despite the tension in the marriage, it's a very playful marriage. We have always been playful with one another. We have been playing games since the moment we met. Sheesh mm -hmm. backgammon. We carry a deck of cards with us when we travel. Um, we play games with friends. We raised our kids playing games. Like there, there's a playfulness. There's also a comp competitiveness, but there's a playfulness. And so the fact that the manuscript ended up like that, it, it's almost a reflection of my uh, an aspect of my marriage. And so I realized that I was onto something and that that really resonated with me. And so I started to go through landed the manuscript and to try and experiment there as well, but not necessarily doing the same things and not repeating myself. So while there are some similar techniques, if you can call them that again, this is all made up. I did all of this while I do use some of the same things like strike throughs. I also do other things that I didn't do in the first book. Wow. Well, I I look forward to to reading that um that one is that one as well. So um we are um we're about to wrap up. Uh, Jennifer, where can people find you online? I am at israelwritersstudio.com. There's only one S between writers and studio. Israelwritersstudio.com. I'm at Jen Lang Writes on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and, uh, the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and bookshop.org. And, um, I'm looking for support because there's nothing worse than putting a book into the world. And 32 days later, having a war start and all about what you're writing about. And I've reached a point where I'm not sure who I can trust in the literary world with my words. And I now sign all of my emails with the region where I live is fragile please treat my words with care. Mm, mm. Um, I, I don't know how to make this book stay afloat. I'm, I need everyone's help. I want to meet with book groups. I would like to meet with synagogues and sisterhoods and I'm coming back to the States. I'll be in LA and San Francisco in February. I'll come to the East coast in November when my second book comes out next year. I need help. I need help or my books are just going to sink. Is is there anything else you would like to share? Um, no. And book reviews on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, wherever. No, nothing. Just help. Okay. Well, thanks. writers plea. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer Lang. And, and please, um, please stay safe. Uh, the book is Places We Left Behind a memoir in miniature. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation 
of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain, the author of The Takeaway Men. The sequel, Shadows We Carry, is available now. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.